Chapter 26 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Gladstone in Retirement. Mr. Gladstone seemed resolved to shake himself free, for the time at least, from the responsibilities of political leadership. On the 13th of January, 1875, he addressed another letter to Lord Granville, in which he explained that the time, he thought, had arrived when he ought to revert to the subject of his letter of the 12th of March in the former year. Before determining, said Mr. Gladstone, whether I should offer to assume the charge which might extend over a length of time, I have reviewed with all the care in my power a number of considerations, both public and private, of which a portion, and these not by any means insignificant, were not in existence at the time of that letter. The result has been that I see no public advantage in my continuing to act as the leader of the Liberal Party, and that at the age of sixty-five, and after forty-two years of a laborious public life, I think myself entitled to retire on the present opportunity. This retirement is dictated to me by my personal views as to the best method of spending the closing years of my life. I need hardly say that my conduct in Parliament will continue to be governed by the principles on which I have heretofore acted, and whatever arrangements may be made for the treatment of general business and for the advantage or convenience of the Liberal Party, they will have my cordial support. I should perhaps add that I am at present, and mean for a short time to be, engaged on a special matter that occupies me closely. The special matter turned out to be chiefly an attack on the Vatican decrees in their bearing on civil allegiance, in the form of a pamphlet which had an immense circulation and caused a very angry controversy. The pamphlet was the outcome of various articles written by Mr. Gladstone on the question of ritualism and the popular dread, which he did not share, that the ritualistic clergy could, if they would, carry the Church of England over to Rome. The publication of the pamphlet on the Vatican decrees in their bearing on civil allegiance caused disappointment and consternation among the Roman Catholics in England, Ireland, and the Empire at large. The long friendship between Mr. Gladstone and the late Cardinal Manning was chilled for a time in the blasts of this debate. Perhaps it would have been better if Mr. Gladstone had left the whole matter alone. But Mr. Gladstone could not help himself. He had to follow his star, his mind refused to give itself absolutely up to any one study of life forever. Great as he was in the House of Commons, his vast energies needed some other field of activity now and then. It was not like the case of Mr. Disraeli, who, when he had an interval of rest from the cares of office, sat down and threw off a three-volume novel. Mr. Disraeli was not burning to write the novel. He had written novels before. He could wait very placidly until a suitable opportunity came for adding to their number. 
but Mr. Gladstone had eminently what the heroines of modern fiction are fond of calling a complex character. When he had spent a certain time over politics and political reform, and when he had either carried or failed to carry some great measure, then it appeared to him, or it appeared to be borne in upon him, that there was something else waiting at his hand that he could do, and which he ought to endeavor to do with all his might. Thus it seemed to have been borne in upon him at the time that he had made up his mind to resign the leadership of the Liberal Party, that the state of the Church of England required his immediate attention. Probably the Public Worship Regulation Bill, brought into the House of Lords and coming thence down to the House of Commons, inspired Mr. Gladstone with the idea that he ought to interpose on behalf of the Church of England. Mr. Gladstone emerged for a moment from his retirement to oppose the bill. I need not go into the question raised by the introduction of this measure, which has no interest for us now otherwise than as a subject affecting the internal discipline of the state church, but undoubtedly these theological debates led him on to the publication of his pamphlet against the Vatican decrees. I need not revive this old controversy. It belongs now to ancient history. Its interest for me, and I fancy for most of my readers, will mainly be found in the fact that it illustrated the irrepressible, indomitable eagerness of Mr. Gladstone's mind to take a kind of rest after it had stretched itself out in one direction by stretching itself out in another. However, Mr. Gladstone held to his resolve not to retain the leadership of the Liberal Party in the House of Commons, he stood by his plea for immunity, founded on the right of his sixty-five years. People are not slow to observe that if Lord Palmerston had retired from public life or had died at the age of sixty-five, England would never have known the fullness of his power as a parliamentary debater. Some of us, no doubt, remembered also that if Count von Moltke had gone into private life or had died at the age of sixty-five, the world would never have known that he had the capacity to be the greatest soldier since the days of Napoleon and Wellington. But Mr. Gladstone persevered in his resolve, and at last it became actually necessary that the Liberal Party should choose his successor. The choice was not easy, although it was very narrow. By far the greatest orator and the greatest influence in the party after Mr. Gladstone, an orator who sometimes even surpassed Mr. Gladstone himself, was John Bright. But everyone knew that John Bright would not accept the office of leader. With all his capacity for hard work at a spell, there was a great deal of the indolent man about him. He told me himself that his pet ambition in life was an unconquerable desire to be doing nothing. This desire, unconquerable though he called it, he managed to trample in the dust whenever public service was required of him for any good purpose, but it was certain that he had no taste for the management of a party and that he would not become the liberal leader. Mr. Robert Lowe, afterward Lord Sherbrooke, was, as we have seen already, a man of great ability, a brilliant debater, endowed with high intellect and furnished with high culture, 
a man of eloquence and epigram and paradox, with an almost fatal gift of sarcasm, and hopeless as a possible leader of the Liberal Party. The choice was limited practically to the late Mr. W. E. Forster and to Lord Hartington, at present the Duke of Devonshire. Mr. Forster was a Yorkshire man, with all Yorkshire's ruggedness of ability, a strong man but not conciliatory, a man who put his head down and went straight at anything that came in his way. And so the choice fell upon Lord Hartington. Now between Mr. Gladstone and Lord Hartington there was a whole vast field of difference. The Liberal Party, although it saw nothing better to do, never realized so thoroughly the extent of its loss as when it was found that Lord Hartington was to be its leader. Let me not do injustice to Lord Hartington. He was a man of ability and of absolute political integrity. There was nothing whatever to win him away from political integrity. He had a great position, he was heir to vast wealth and a dukedom, but he had not in his nature one single gleam of enthusiasm. It would have been impossible for him to inspire enthusiasm in others. No ray of imagination brightened his slow, solid, some people even said stolid, common sense. The hearts of some of the more advanced liberals sank within them when they found that they had come from Mr. Gladstone to Lord Hartington but there was nothing else to be done, and Lord Hartington was elected leader of the Liberal Party. Without any disparagement to Lord Hartington, it may be said that the light seemed suddenly to have gone out. The Liberal Party became for the time colorless and lifeless to the ordinary observer. Mr. Gladstone himself, in one of his Homeric studies, points out the supreme light of interest which always follows the movements of Achilles. When Achilles is off the stage, the scene is comparatively dark. So it was with Mr. Gladstone himself in the House of Commons. Everything seemed lacking in interest. Lord Hartington did his very best. He strove hard to make himself a good debater, and to a certain extent he succeeded. He had to struggle against the heaviest and worst manner that it is almost impossible to conceive in the case of a man with any gift of speech at all. His voice was harsh and heavy. His manner was stolid, and he had no real oratorical capacity or even inclination. He was perfectly well aware of his own defects and was to a great extent embarrassed by a continual over-consciousness of the vast difference in debating power between him and his superb predecessor. But he set himself to work with a thoroughly British doggedness of determination, and in the end he hammered himself, if I may use such an expression, into a really good parliamentary debater. For myself, I may say that I watched Lord Hartington's career at the time and I conceived a decided admiration for his dogged resolve to do the best he could. But, of course, the whole condition of things was changed so far as public interest was concerned. There were, for the time at least, no more great debates. Disraeli had no longer an opponent fit to cross swords with him. Bright took little part in public affairs. The Tories, for the most part, had it all their own way. 
Lord Hartington could and did improve his own style of parliamentary speaking, but the truth soon became only too apparent that he could not lead a liberal party. Men who had come lately into the House were crying forward, while Lord Hartington was crying back. It was known to everyone that Lord Hartington had no real sympathy with the objects and the aspirations of the newer Liberal Party. He was, of course, an aristocrat by birth and training and association, and he had not one gleam of the imagination or enthusiasm which has sent many a born and bred aristocrat into the ranks of some great popular movement. He was perfectly willing that justice should be done to every reasonable and temperate claim on behalf of the people, but he could not look forward, and he apparently could not believe in anything but a grudging concession of portion after portion of some popular claim. He differed only from the high old-fashioned Tories in the fact that he was not willing to put his foot down and say, nothing shall ever be done in the way of change. There was always in Mr. Disraeli, and there was for a time in the late Lord Randolph Churchill, a strong inclination for the cause of the English working democracy and for an endeavor to take the lead in that way and convert the working man into a Tory Democrat. But Lord Hartington cared for nothing of all this and did not want to convert anybody into anything. He was perfectly content to let things rest as they were, with the half-reserved admission that if any change should have to be made, it ought to come by little and little, and at distant intervals of time. Many people thought him haughty, believed him to set high account upon his rank, and to look down with contempt upon all his social inferiors. For myself, I do not believe that Lord Hartington ever troubled himself about his rank or thought about his rank. He had always been the son of a duke and heir to a dukedom, and he was just as well accustomed to it as he was accustomed to being a man. But he was shy, reserved, and awkward in manner, and this is what made people think him distant and haughty. In any case, it can be easily understood what an immense difference there was between such a man as this and the leader whom the Liberal Party had just lost. Mr. Gladstone appeared now and again in the House of Commons and took part in a debate. Every time he spoke only served to impress the Liberal Party more and more with the greatness of the loss it had sustained. Mr. Disraeli, meantime, was playing a showy and an ambitious part. He was a thirst for influence in foreign affairs and even for intervention in foreign affairs. He had it for time all his own way. Mr. Lowe stood up to him once or twice and held his own very pluckily and manfully. But Mr. Lowe was only an isolated gladiator, and Mr. Disraeli was the master of many legions. Therefore, Mr. Disraeli ran the country into all manner of enterprises abroad. He brought up again a so-called imperial principle, which was to restore the policy and the system of Elizabethan days. And in fact, the foreign policy of Great Britain went, if I may use so vulgar an expression, on the rampage. Where all the time was Mr. Gladstone? The liberals kept asking. 
he was engaged in polemical controversy with Cardinal Newman and Cardinal Manning. One general conclusion was adopted on both sides of the house, that Mr. Gladstone never meant to lead a political party again. It was urged, and with great show of reason, that a man with his knowledge of affairs would never have got into antagonism with all the Roman Catholic subjects of the Queen and all Roman Catholic sovereigns and princes and people everywhere if he had had the remotest intention of assuming again such a part in public life as might lead once more to his becoming prime minister. People did not reflect that all through his career he had had a positive passion for theological study and for theological controversy. In his youth, as we have seen, he was anxious to become a clergyman, and if he had done so he would have become in all human probability one of the greatest churchmen England has ever known. Down to his latest days, whenever he had a chance, he always sought relief from politics in classical study or in theological dispute. At this particular period of his career, Mr. Gladstone no doubt sincerely believed that his political work was over. There seemed nothing particular for him to do, and according to all appearance, the reign of the Tories was likely to be long. He had always a contempt hardly even disguised, for Disraeli's flashy foreign policy, but he probably thought that at this time there was no great harm to be done, and at any rate not much to be accomplished by formal opposition. But those who believed that Mr. Gladstone had buried his whole existence in a controversy conducted, so to speak, in the Roman catacombs, soon found how completely they had misunderstood the man and failed to take due account of the possibilities of the time. End of chapter 26